Welcome back to a special edition of the Catholic Creatives Podcast. What do JP2, Greek baths, and Catholic creatives have to do with each other? Well, quite a lot, turns out. It's been a minute, but we missed you guys, so we decided to dust off this interview that Matt and I did with Christopher West. He recently released a retreat that JP2 gave to artists as a book called God is Beauty. And we got into some really interesting and very vulnerable waters. What JP2 outlines is a path for us creatives and artists to use our creative gifts in ways that can heal us from our culture's distorted and shamed relationship with the body. And as usual, in talking to Christopher, the Holy Spirit revealed some profound truths to us. I teared up many times throughout the conversation, and I think you will too. But before we jump in, just a word from our sponsors. Every adult is wrestling with the best way to raise faithful kids in a world that is increasingly less faithful, while making sure our kids stay cool and connected. Catholic.Store recently released the Lion and Lamb Book Club for Kids, delivering three to five highly curated, beautiful books for children based on their age to their doorstep every quarter. The box contains a range of new Catholic releases, hidden classics, and undiscovered gems, as well as discussion questions to help parents have rich and formative conversations with their kids at bedtime. You can check Lion and Lamb Book Club out at www.lionandlamb.club or at catholic.store. And without further ado, let's jump into the conversation. All right, guys, we're very excited today to be speaking with Christopher West. Thank you for tuning in, as always, to the Catholic Creatives Podcast. We've got Anthony D'Ambrosio, Christopher West, and myself, Matt Meeks, here to talk about his new commentary on JP2's retreat on the gospel and art, a new book that you can purchase from him as well as all things creative and beauty and art in the church and so many things that touch upon our hearts. So Christopher, thank you for being with us. We're really happy to have you here. It's a joy to be with you guys. I really respect what you are doing. It's so important that people who understand the creative side of life, even if you can put it that way, I don't know if that's the best expression, the creative side of life, it kind of puts it off in a box rather than it's, it's like the creative it's not part the side of, life. of life. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it is life. Come on. I mean, <laughs> if it weren't for creativity, none of us would exist. Hello. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I think creativity is at the heart of all things. I read this book that I found, and it was when I was working at the Archdiocese in Los Angeles, and it was just stuck on a bookshelf. And it was this, it said, Secrets of a Seraph. And I thought maybe this is like kind of a you know, I'm, I'm curious about what this book was. It was old. And I pulled it out and it was the writings of St. Mary Magdalene of Pazzi, who's, um, she's a Carmelite who, uh, uh, Pazzi means like uh, crazy. And so she's like uh. St. Mary Magdalene of the crazies, but she's a mystic. And so she would have these messages from the Lord that she would write down. And but she talks about all things. She's expanding on the gospel of John, that all things came to be through the word, but that kind of in the voice of God, that she says, God, had one thought, and that one thought was Christ, and from Christ came all things. And I think that in that sense, like Christ, the sacred heart, Christ is at the heart of our creative father. Beautiful. Creativity is at the center of all things. It's a creative heart of life. Amen. That's totally. the point I was trying to make. Exactly. Totally. Totally. It's awesome. So Christopher, tell us about your new book. You know, I can't really say your new book because it's commentary on the words of the great Saint John Paul II. Yeah, um, the book, the book itself is called God is Beauty. It's a retreat that Carol Wojtyla gave to artists in 1962. And I only learned about this. I mean, I've been studying the works of Wojtyla slash John Paul II since the early 90s. But I only discovered the existence of this work in 2016. I was reading a book by a former professor of mine and a longtime friend of John Paul II's. His name's Stanislaw Griegel. And he mentioned this retreat that Wojtyla gave to artists in 1962, it piqued my interest right away. It's like, oh my gosh, I got to get my hands on that. But then he said something that just compelled me. He said that this retreat to artists forms a single whole with John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Wow. And I thought, oh my gosh, how do I get my hands on this? It hadn't been translated in English. I contacted a friend of mine in Poland I said, do you know anything about this retreat Wojtyla gave in 1962? He said, yes. I said, can you please translate it for me? Just do a private translation for me. I have to read this. 
So a few weeks later arrived in my inbox this private translation in English of this retreat. And yes, indeed, I saw right away why Griegel had said it forms a single whole with the theology of the body. And it was, it was a gem, just one of those hidden gems from John Paul II that deserved a wider audience. So the Theology of the Body Institute was also in the process of forming a press to publish works. We went through all the channels to get the proper Vatican permissions to have this work more officially translated and published in English. And that's this volume called God is Beauty, a Retreat on the Gospel and Art. And it's full of commentary. I wrote a commentary on it that's included. And then we have several other authors and artists, theologians, offering various reflections on the retreat. So the volume itself is full of lots of wealth beyond just the retreat from Wojtyla. That's awesome. You're like a um, kind of Indiana Jones type, you know, (laughs) uncovering these hidden gems of the faith and bringing them to us. So thanks for doing that. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, Yeah, it it did take a little bit of of work and digging to make it all happen. But yeah, I'm just delighted to be able to present this to the church, the English speaking world. What are some of those pieces that when you first read it, just like lit you up in terms of completing theology of the body or making you realize you had to bring this to life. Yeah, well, I'll tell you that the thing that lit me up was a reflection he gives on a memory when he was an early, early in his priesthood, he was studying in Rome, getting his doctorate. And he said he took a tour of the Diocletian baths. And this is where those ancient sculptures of the Greeks are housed. This you know, where you'd have these idealized images of the naked body carved in marble. And like any good Catholic, the young Wojtyla ran the other way and thought this was an occasion of sin. (laughs) No, this is not what he did. Why do we think that? Why do people think that? (laughs) What he did, as he says himself, is I took many hours, and he says it was a great effort to study these works of art, these masterpieces of sculpture of the human body. And he said, after many hours and great spiritual labor, he emphasizes this over and over, great spiritual labor, I came to understand, and this is what is so stunning. He says, I came to understand that these people were looking for the incarnation. They were looking for perfect beauty manifested in the human body. And he says, as I pondered this, I came to understand the gospel anew, and I came to understand the gospel better. Because perfect beauty, what every human heart yearns for, perfect beauty has been manifested in the flesh. It's called the incarnation. This bold declaration by Wojtyla, that what we're really looking for, even in the distortions of our pursuit of beauty in the human body, there's still something good that has been distorted. This is so important, and it brings us to a fundamental principle of Catholic cosmology that if we get this wrong, we get the whole universe wrong. And it's this, the devil doesn't have his own clay. This is so important for us to understand. When we give the devil his own clay, we end up Manichaean, meaning we think that the physical world is evil, right? Mm -hmm. Spirit good, body bad. That's Manichaeism. That's Gnosticism. It's Puritanism. It's all kinds of other isms. But at heart, when we say the devil doesn't have his own clay, what we're saying is everything that exists was created by God and Everything that God created, behold, it is very good. What sin and the devil do is they get their hands on that good clay that God made and they twist it, distort it, right? But here's the good news of the gospel. Christ comes into the world not to throw that twisted clay away. Christ comes into the world to untwist that clay, And that's exactly what Wojtyla, that's why he Mm. said it took such great spiritual effort and Mm. interior labor to discover this, because it is, it is a spiritual work, a difficult interior labor to see where our idolatry of the body is actually looking for something good, but we have to untwist that idol 
so that we can rediscover the good clay that got twisted up. That's what the incarnation is. The incarnation itself is the untwisting of the clay that the enemy twisted up with sin. That's awesome. A lot of thoughts came to me as you were talking. One's a story and another is just an affirmation of what you're saying. I think I'll start with the affirmation, but I've often thought that the devil, we are made in the image and likeness of God and the devil is not. He is a different a different creation, you know, the angels are, but he is non-generative. He's not made in the image of the creator and therefore is not a creative in his capacity, though he is very smart. And so he needs us to create for him. The kingdom that he's building, he must enslave us for, which is part of, I'm sure, what angers him so much. Because he's activating that gift that we have being made in the image of the Father towards his own purposes. But every time I see his work, it's funny because I've never thought of it in that way, but I've touched on it a little bit in my thought. He forces us into an objectification of the created world, so which separates spirit from body. And yeah, very and, much and so. Here yeah. we can we can see, you know, as scripture says, Lucifer fell out of envy. Yeah. What is envy and what does he envy? Envy is different than jealousy. Jealousy says, I wish I had what you had. But envy goes a step further and says, I hate that you have it, and I want you to hate that you have it too. Mm. So what do we have that the angels don't have? Bodies. Bodies. And what can our bodies do that the angels can't do? You just brought this up earlier. Create. Create. Can we technically say the angels are not made in the image and likeness of God? We can say we yeah. can say this. The angels are not made in the image and likeness of God in the same way that we, that we are. are. That makes sense. And we are made in the image and likeness of God, not only through our spiritual souls, but as the catechism says, the body also shares in the divine image. We have this ability with our bodies to generate, to create with the creator. And the proper word here is procreation, right? To create with the creator bodily. The angels cannot do that. And the fallen angels envy that we can do that. I would say the incarnation, the incarnation, though, is an aspect of the image and likeness of God of which the angels do not participate. Correct. Correct. Which brings us back to the envy. Yeah. Because, you know, this is kind of theological speculation, but many saints, mystics have said that Lucifer had a vision in the beginning of the incarnation, and he could not accept that the second person of the Trinity would enter his creation and take on flesh. And he could not accept that flesh in the end would be raised higher than the angels. Mm. And so he's envious of human flesh. He hates the human body. He hates the human body's ability to generate new life, and he wants us to hate it too. And look at our world today. That hatred of the body, and more specifically, of its ability to generate, that hatred is writ large in our world, and it's diabolic. And it is a direct diabolic attack against the incarnation, Mm. against beauty, perfect beauty, manifested in the flesh. One of the things that I've been reflecting on a lot, actually recently, I think it's it's an amazingly providential and timely moment to have a conversation about like God is beauty and how that is a, like a healing revelation. I think that it's hard to grow up in our culture. I mean, particularly, I think with our generation, without being imbibed with a really pornographic view of the human body. And yes, um, I think that as I'm reflecting more and more on my own childhood, and particularly as I'm moving forward towards like relationship and marriage, I'm realizing that there was a lot of like trauma that came from experiencing the body as something that was an object, right? Like, um, yes. And I mean, that's sort of theological language, but the personal and emotional kind of toll of experiencing the addiction to porn and the kind of hookup culture that sort of surrounded me as a young person has given me a certain wounding that I definitely feel that like God has been healing me through the work of creativity. Yes. Um, yes. And he's been drawing me 
in a way that's very terrifying in some ways. I almost want to avoid anything that is like sexual because of that. Yes. Uh, there's a, a fleeing internally from the body, even though I'm so about it. There's still a fleeing in a sense of like, oh, that's, I don't want to go there because of that, I guess, trauma. And so I was wondering if you could speak perhaps to the way that this retreat and this book is a, I guess, a work of healing for people to go through as they uh, go through that spiritual labor to see the incarnation in the body. Yeah. Anthony, that's a very insightful point you're making that there can be, because we grow up in this pornographic view of the body, we can think that the body itself is to be avoided or is unholy. But let me put it this way. If you want to know what is most sacred in the mind of God, all you have to do is look at that which the enemy most violently attacks. If you want to know what is most sacred, look to that which is most violently profaned. Mm. And look at the word profane. If you pick it apart, the word profanum, the Latin, it means outside of or in front of the temple. To profane something means to take something sacred, mm. something that belongs in the sacred realm, the realm of the temple, and to pull it out of that realm. That's what pornography is. Pornography is a hellish mockery of a heavenly reality. And the heavenly reality that is being mocked is precisely the incarnation. Right from the very beginning, in the biblical view of things, our creation as male and female and the call of the two to become one flesh is a foreshadowing of the incarnation. It's very plainly spoken of by St. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 when he quotes from the book of Genesis and he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And then he adds, This is a great mystery. And here I love the ring of the Greek. This is a mega mystery, Paul says. This is a mega mystery. Pause right there. Your body, Anthony, your body, Matt, my body, the body of every human being is a mega mystery. Male and female, he created them and he called the two to become one flesh. This is a mega mystery and it refers to Christ and the church. It refers to the most sacred reality that exists, the incarnation and the, the union of Christ with his church in the flesh. This is why the enemy is after the body. Pornography has one end goal, to blind us to the sacred mystery revealed through our bodies as male and female. This retreat by Carol Wojtyla is a journey into the untwisting of that twisted up clay. Mm. And I want to make this if I may, can I tell a story that might just make this a little more practical for people? Yeah, please. I've been married almost 27 years, and I remember this experience, which happened 27 years ago, as if it were yesterday. It was about three weeks before my wedding, and I was praying in front of the Blessed Sacrament, and I was praying specifically about fears I was facing about my wedding night. And the fears I was facing was, how was I going to be a true gift to my wife? Because I had been exposed to a lot of pornography earlier in my life. And I was afraid that these pornographic connotations and memories were going to be haunting me. And I had been on a long enough journey at that point that I knew this principle, the devil doesn't have his own clay, and that pornography is just the twisting up of something good. And I really felt there in front of the Blessed Sacrament this invitation to allow those twisted pornographic images that were kind of seared into my mind. I really felt the Lord was saying, give those memories to me and let me untwist them. And so I spent about over two hours going through the memories in my mind of these twisted, diseased images of the human body. And one by one, I just gave them to the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. I said, Lord, take this lie, untwist this lie, and show me the truth. 
untwist this lie and show me the truth. One by one by one by one. Again, over two hours later, I found the last image I could remember in my memory. I gave it to the Lord. I said, untwist this lie and show me the truth. And I had a vision in that moment that I will never forget. One of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And when I say a vision, I mean, it's like you're having a dream, but you're awake. Mm -hmm. And I saw an image of the Christ child at the breast of the Blessed Mother. And I heard, if you will, it's not audible, but kind of in my own heart, I heard a voice say, this is what you were looking for the whole time. Hmm. That was, in my own experience, something similar to what Wojtyla went through as a young priest when he was touring the Diocletian baths and saw all that nude art. And he came to realize that the Greeks had been seeking perfect beauty manifested in the flesh. And that's what the incarnation is. They had been looking for the mystery of the incarnation. In the fullness of time, God sent his son born of a woman. It's always male and female together that reveal the mystery. So that image of the Christ child feeding from the beauty of woman in the most holy, sacred way imaginable. That was a tremendous healing for me of the diseased images and ideas in my mind of woman's body. And it also showed me the goodness of my own hunger at its fundamental level, right? What is sin? Sin is misdirected desire. When we sin, we're actually looking for something good, St. Thomas says, but we miss the mark. When we take our desire to behold the true goodness and beauty of the human body to porn, we're missing the mark, people. It's like we are drinking salt water. Mm. You know, we take our thirst mm -hmm. to salt water, and there's some semblance of wetness in my mouth, and it feels good, and I swallow it, and I have some semblance of satisfying my thirst. But that salt water is going to just make me more and more thirsty. And I'm going to drink more and more salt water until I kill myself. Yeah. yeah. We have to let the Holy Spirit come into those diseased places in our minds and in our hearts and those disordered desires and redirect them towards the true, the good and the beautiful. That's the great gift of this book, this retreat from Carol Wojtyla. He takes us on a journey of redirecting our desires towards the true, the good, and the beautiful. It's awesome. My wife started a, uh, before we got married, she helped co-found a water nonprofit that was doing work to bring water to people, you know, in Africa, on the Navajo Nation here in the United States and various different places. And she tells these stories. She went to this village, I think it was in Cameroon. And they had already, they had put a well in place or something where the people had clean water. And when they went back to visit them, they were back to drinking the dirty water, even though they had clean water. Wow. And because basically you have like, um, the rain would come through their village and this is kind of gross, but the part of the culture of their village was the men would relieve themselves outside of their huts to show like how good a cooks their wives were. So like it was huh. this this thing that they had done forever that makes no sense except for the people of that village. But then the rains would come through and wash all of that into their water supply. And so the kids had, you know, terrible diseases and problems and things. And Mercy. Um, so they get them a well and the well doesn't solve the problem. They give them clean water. They didn't want the clean water. They liked the taste of the dirty water. They become accustomed to that. And so then they had to basically put a process in place for educating the people over years and it was interesting. It was the women. They solved it by creating a water council of women in the village because the women cared about the children. And so they educated the women and the women became the ones that educated the husbands and controlled the water. And then that is what led to change in the practice. Wow, what an image. What a metaphor. Right. Yeah, but it, your saltwater thing made me think of it at 100%, right? It just it, it lines up with what you're saying. But th that's how we behave. You know, that's how we behave. Wow, what yeah. a powerful metaphor that yeah. is. Yeah. What stories do either of you guys have that might be similar, like an experience of some untwisting of the clay in your own Ooh. life where some idolatrous attachment or other got untwisted. Yeah, I'll go only because your story made me think of my own and then I wasn't sure if I should share it. But since you ask, I will. 
I grew up in a home with a bad marriage, a father who had his good parts, but then also missed the mark in numerous ways. And I won't say more than that. I think, you know, I pray for him. And But I'd never seen a good marriage. And so, and I never saw what it was to be a husband. I just, you know, I, I saw it in friends' homes, but never intimately, you know, in my home. And so the only place I'd ever seen men that were worthy of following was in in the priesthood and in studying the saints. And so as a young kid, for me, it was, I thought, 100% that, well, if I want to be the ideal man, then it's to become a priest. And I started pursuing that, but I fell into my own, you know, like I had my wild times in my life for sure, where I fell far from that image that I had held up of this ideal college. You know, I fell into kind of the ways of the world and different girlfriends and different things. And I worked in the entertainment industry for a while and wasn't, you know, so I finally said to myself, I'm separating from all of that. And I'm really going to discern the priesthood. And so I was working at Warner Brothers at the time. And I was like a monk at Warner Brothers. I had a picture of Padre Pio on my desk. I played chant through the speakers while I was doing work. You know, people would come in. I was the weird, the weird guy at Warner Brothers, but it was cool because they thought Padre Pio was a Jedi. And I was just super into like, into Star Wars or something. And so, (laughs) (laughs) but anyway, so I was going through this kind of process of like going from one side to the other, but really diving into, is there a call to the priesthood and feeling like that was my path and got to know Archbishop Gomez pretty well and uh, was, would meet with him and met with a spiritual director. And every time I tried to go into the seminary, just didn't like every time I tried to go to these discernment meetings, it never worked out. I had a business trip or something, you know, I'd have to travel or something would come up. And I finally said to the archbishop, there's just, I need a custom path to the priesthood. This isn't working for me, but I feel that this is what the Lord's leading me to. There's, you know, I see no other path. And so he said, well, if you want to be a priest, get in the seminary, I'll make some calls. You can, you know, we'll do it in the fall. And I said, that sounds great. And this was in June. So it's like, okay, really quickly, we're going to change some things. That night, I was asked to join the board of this water nonprofit that had recently started. And I sit down at a dinner across from this beautiful woman. And in LA, we, you know, to meet someone and, and sit down at a meal and we both do the sign of the cross. So I was like, whoa, you know, there's another Catholic here. And so we start talking and we talk till two in the morning, just about wow. everything. And I knew there was no middle ground here. Like I left that meeting with her and I knew that either she was my wife or she was the devil. And I, I wasn't sure which, you know, like there was, and, so, yeah. and so fast forward, I knew that I was in New York on business and she happened to be in New York with her family. And my mom was in New York randomly. And so we decided to meet up and my mom met her mom and all these things, but we were just, just acquaintances. And in the cab on the way back, my mom said, you know, what's with this girl? And I blew up, you know, I just, there's too much emotion and I didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want to go into my heart. I didn't want to mm. pray through it. And so I got mad at my mom. And then I knew, I knew there was something I had to address. The next morning I woke up, I apologized to my mom and I prayed the Mary Endure of Nats Novena. And the knot that I specifically focused on was not knowing what it was to be a husband. And how can I choose the priesthood if I don't understand what it is to be a husband? And so I asked Mary to heal that for me because I knew that whether it was a priest or she was just there to help me work through what it is to be a husband, to be a good priest, I should probably understand that. And so beautiful. So I I prayed that every day in this novena. And it was probably three days in or something. I was meditating on the the joyful mysteries. And it's the same thing as you say, like a vision was it's just like it played through my mind, but in a way that I'd never experienced it before. And I'm a very creative person. So when I pray the mysteries of the rosary, I put myself in the scene and the scene is always the same. And the, at the nativity, I'm, you know, there's firelight, there's a cow head poking out from the corner. <laughs> Joseph's, Joseph's, you know, like nice behind Mary, you know, praying quietly and Mary's looking at baby Jesus. And that's my usual scene. But this scene was Mary giving birth. And so like Our Lady delivered our Lord. And I saw Joseph hold Jesus and lift him up over his head with su- and just stare at him with such love. And then superimposed over him was a priest holding the Eucharist. And then it was Joseph. Wow. wow. And then Joseph's eyes, it was like a moment where he was transfixed, just a moment. And then his eyes said, and his face said, oh, Mary. You know, he didn't say it. It was just like his thoughts went to Mary. And he gave Jesus to Mary. And that was the end of the vision. 
And I heard the words on my heart, there's a priest of the family too. Woo! And I had no idea what that meant. And so I went to my spiritual director and told him, and he said, well, Matt, yeah, that, that's what a husband is. Uh, you know, he's, he leads his family in prayer. He, he offers sacrifice on behalf of his family. He started going through all these things that I had fallen in love with the priesthood. And I said, so wait, you're telling me I could be a priest for Catherine? And, uh, <laughs> and he goes, Matt, yeah, that's what a husband is. <laughs> and uh, Anyway, then like everything was healed. This twisting of the clay from my childhood and not knowing and understanding what it was to be a husband, the, the misunderstanding of the priesthood, which is really rooted in Christ's marriage to his church. Like all these things came, came into healing and I understood my vocation and I understood, like it just became very clear. I have to marry Catherine. And so that was my story. Wow, Matt, yeah. that is powerful. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I think that there's something about the journey that I've been on through Catholic creatives and through the work of making art myself and kind of embracing that like call that has also been really, really powerful for me. Particularly, I've been writing a, a script, a movie about Maximilian Kolbe and the sort of ending chapters of his life from when him and the nine other men are locked in the cell to, mm. when, they, to when they die. And there's a lot of nakedness in that. I mean, <laughs> in the script, I'm not actually having them all naked, but in reality, they were stripped of all clothing and put in a cell to die of exposure, basically. And the process of like constantly meditating on that image has been a really profound experience of healing for me because in a lot of ways, like I feel like the way that Maximilian Colby's story is usually presented is he, he traded his life for another man. And I think that's really beautiful. And in a way, it's an image of the sort of the atonement that Jesus has done for us and sort of trading his life for, for our own. But what I think is actually more profound that isn't really told or focused on is his entering into the suffering that other men were facing. Like he became a mm. priest for this cell and became a missionary to this cell of men who were facing some of the most deepest, hopeless suffering in the world and brought his own body nakedly to that. And so many images that you see, particularly there's a couple of, there's an artist that was from Auschwitz that painted images of these men, like huddled together, holding each other. Wow. Um, and they're just excruciatingly beautiful, you know, like the suffering that they were going through led them to holding each other in the body. And of course, they sang songs and prayed together throughout that time. But I think for me, knowing the way that Colby reached out to Mary during that time and the way that they kind of held to each other has been incredibly powerful. And yeah, if there's one thing that I really wish was some would be a fruit of the work that you're doing, Chris, and perhaps the work that Catholic Creatives is doing is in contrast to the pornographic culture and the images that we see, a profusion of images made by Catholic artists of the nude body to redeem what is and bring what is profane back into the temple. Because I think that there has to be just as much sacred imagery of the body that is as powerful as the things that are out there that we see um, that could be healing. And for me, some of those images of Colby, you know, nakedly holding the other men in the cell were absolutely moving to me in terms of being able to see the sacredness of the body and see Christ in that. Yeah, we overcome evil with good, right? We overcome bad arrows with good arrows and yeah. plenty of it. And there I'm quoting a, an Eastern Orthodox theologian, uh, Timothy Petitsis. This point has to be underscored that we are taking our hunger to porn because we don't know about the banquet that the Lord has for us. And we don't overcome the problem just by scolding porn and by scolding those who go to porn. We have to give them the holy reality that porn is mocking. Yeah, if yeah. we don't do that, we end in a total void. Mm. Right? And my metaphor here is, you know, I like to say it this way. I was raised on what you might call the starvation diet gospel where the basic message hovering in the air was your desires are bad. They're only going to get you in trouble. You need to repress all that and follow these rules, and then you'll be a good upstanding Christian citizen. 
Well, if that's the way the gospel is presented, no wonder I became a convert in my teen years to what I call the fast food gospel, which is the secular culture's promise of immediate gratification for the hunger. And don't lie to me, the chicken nuggets taste really good going down when you're hungry, right? But if that becomes your steady diet, it's only a matter of time before the grease and the sodium is going to catch up with you. And that's a picture of me in my college years. I had eaten a lot of fast food, so to speak. So the grease and the sodium caught up with me. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was sick. I was really hurting. And it put me on my knees in a college dorm in 1988 saying, God in heaven, if you exist, you better show me. And you better show me why you gave me all these desires because they're getting me and everybody I know into a hell of a lot of trouble. Yeah. And that led me to discover through the work of John Paul II, eventually I discovered Christianity is not a starvation diet. It's an invitation to a banquet, <laughs> to a wedding feast. If we are not inviting people to the wedding feast, we have two options. You're going to starve or you're going to go to the fast food. And you can't just yell at people going to the fast food and say you shouldn't go there. We have to invite them to the banquet, right? Because the fast food is a mockery mm -hmm. of the banquet. And I love what St. Augustine says, or at least this is attributed to St. Augustine. He said something like this, those who are lost in their passions are less lost than those who have lost their passions. That's very important. They're both lost. Let's make right. that clear. But those who are lost in their passions are less lost than those who have lost their passions. Why? Because they still feel the hunger. They still seek it. Yeah. They're still seeking something. And seekers find, right? Yeah. What was it that led the prodigal son to leave his father's house? It was his hunger and a false belief that his father couldn't satisfy it. But what was it that brought him back to his father's house? The understanding that his father could satisfy it. Boom. It was yeah. the same hunger yeah. and coming to a place of faith that his father could satisfy it. But interestingly enough, right at the start of that parable, it says in scripture that Jesus addressed this parable to the Pharisees, which indicates that the real story is not so much about the son who left, but the son who stayed. The son who followed all the rules externally, but wasn't in touch with the hungers of his heart. So that when he hears the banquet going on in the celebration, he doesn't even go into the party. That's tragic because that party is a symbol of heaven. Yeah. Heaven is for hungry people. Yeah. If you're not in touch with your hunger for heaven, you're not going to enter. <laughs> yeah. You're going to stay on the outside and think it's all about following the rules. No, 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 no. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they will be satisfied. Jesus did not come to squelch our desire. He came to awaken it. He came to infinitize it. He came to stretch it beyond our wildest imaginings so that we realize our greatness we are made for infinity. We are made for an ecstasy and a bliss and a beauty that is infinite. Saints are the ones who have allowed beauty, the beauty of God, to pierce them so deeply that they are undone by that beauty and transformed into it. That's what a saint is. I think particularly listening to you talk here and me thinking about my generation and younger. So I'm, let's say millennials down. I'm almost 40. So millennials down. This is a um, globally, the problem of, of pornography. And for those who have managed to stay away from it, the effects of it on such a large amount of the population is so pervasive. But it's not just that. It's the spirit behind it that objectifies the spirit behind it that even in faith turns like how many times have you seen a Facebook conversation devolve into an argument where somebody doesn't see the person? They're just spouting facts. You yes, know, yes. Just, this soul is missing, you know, yes, or even yes. 
the last however many years of the church, you look at church architecture and, you know, new churches being built. It's not to say I have any problems with modern architecture, but modern architecture that loses its continuity with the past and is just rooted in a, a moment and then ceases to be relevant. Yes. The church is going through this process that the world is going through, which is yes. focusing on the moment, focusing on the immediate, trying to, to win a person's soul to the truth with one comment. Yeah, yeah right. And so I believe, I mean, and I think the church in its entirety will profess that St. John Paul II was a prophet, that he, who he was as our Holy Father and the gifts that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit had given him prophetic gifts of, you know, the theology of the body and so much of what he brought to us was a new way of looking at truth that the church was not facing. In that sense, you know, it's like you are an Elisha to his Elijah, you know, there's a there's a prophetic role that you have right now in the church that the church hasn't fully accepted yet. We're not putting to practice. There's a truth that needs to be spoken. And my heart, you know, when I've heard you speak, not just this time, but other times, like my heart activates. And that's something from the Lord. So I want, want to acknowledge that in you too. Thank you for it. Thank you for just being a person who lets God work through you and, and who speaks this truth. But I, as I particularly tie this back to artists and tie this back to the Catholic creatives community and tie this back to, um, I think artists and prophets are close friends and should be. Yes, you know, if, I if agree. Not, if not one and the same. Because the artist is trying to communicate something, trying to communicate a truth that is on their heart that they have to communicate. Yes. And they're trying to bring something into being that only they can feel or experience or know and I think so many young artists and old artists, so many artists who have tried to bring their gifts to the church have faced these issues. They've faced a church that isn't ready for their art or says it's ready, but doesn't really want it. They face the church that doesn't understand their voice, that doesn't know how to listen to it. They've faced bureaucracy and not family. And so just as a, as a way of encouragement to you as someone who's had to carry a prophetic voice in a church where it's difficult to do so. Do you have any advice for artists in the church who are trying to bring to life something that's on their heart that is important for the church at this moment? Yes, I could speak into that. And if I were to do it justice, we would be here for many, many hours. <laughs> I have just a flood of stories going through my mind and heart, memories, and all of them painful. <laughs> I would say the problem in the church in this regard, meaning this situation you're talking about, where the artist has something to share and is not received, is that the church by and large is anesthetized. And if you pick apart that word, it actually means etymologically, that word means numb to beauty. Hmm numb to beauty. Well, hold on. If God is beauty and we are anesthetized and we are numb to beauty, what does that mean? It means we're numb to God. <laughs> a church that is numb to God. This is a problem. <laughs> and, and those who are not numb to God, those who are not numb to beauty, who are trying to share with others the beauty they have encountered when they run into those who are anesthetized will suffer. And this seems like a defeat. This seems like my gift will never bear its fruit. But here's where the challenge of faith comes in, because it is precisely in embracing that suffering of not being received that the greatest fertility of the artist is poured forth. And we see this precisely in the Paschal mystery. Mm -hmm. God is beauty, right? Beauty, God, came in the flesh, Jesus Christ. He came to his own. Beauty came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And in that rejection that went the whole way to the cross and the piercing of his heart. That bleeding heart became the seed of the bridegroom that gave birth to the new and immortal life. I mean, that's fertility. That's supernatural fertility. 
That's true artistry. That's true creativity. That's what the Paschal Mystery is. One could say that there's no greater ugliness than the rejection of beauty. And yet, beauty's acceptance of its rejection. Did you follow that? Mm-hmm. Meaning Christ accepting his fate that he is beauty. He comes to his own. His own does not receive him. Beauty's acceptance of its own rejection just magnifies the beauty. Mm-hmm. Because love is pouring itself out even though it's not being received, which demonstrates just the infinitude of love. And then we have that next line in the gospel where it says he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. What's the next line? But those who did receive him, he gave power to become children of God, not children generated by a husband's seed, but generated by a new immortal kind of fertility. That's what's being revealed at the cross, a new kind of fertility, a new kind of creativity that comes from bleeding, that comes from suffering. John Paul II speaks of this very pointedly and vividly in this retreat to artists, where he says any genuine artist will suffer. And then he uses exactly this image. He will suffer labor pains in giving birth to beauty. And you can tell Wojtyla here is speaking from his own experience, the labor pains of his own artistry as an actor, as a poet, Mm -hmm. as a playwright. And he uses many different examples, but he says, think how many hours of hard, disciplined labor the musician must endure to make a beautiful work of art. I often recommend to people, in fact, I say this in one of the essays I wrote in the book. I say, the next time you are touched by a movie, watch the credits at the end and count the number of people, hundreds of people who labored who gave their blood, sweat, and tears to create that work of art and thank God for each and every one of them and what they suffered so that that beauty could touch your heart. I remember years ago, I was watching an orchestra perform a beautiful piece of music and I was struck by how many hours, years of collective effort those musicians had poured in so that I could be touched by that beauty. And I just started crying with gratitude to those artists for what they had suffered. For me, suffering is part of the vocation of the artist. There's no way around it. And in fact, if you reject that suffering, Wojtyla also brings this up in the retreat. If you reject the suffering that is part and parcel of being a true artist, you will end up idolizing yourself as an artist. You will not recognize that the beauty that is flowing through you does not originate in you. And Wojtyla reflects on this line from a Polish poet, a stream of beauty flows through me, but I am not beauty itself, right? That's the vocation of the artist, to open up, to let that beauty flow through you. And the the only consolation of the suffering that will inevitably befall you, if you let that beauty flow through you, the only consolation is your union with Jesus in that suffering and that it will bear its fruit. It will bear its fruit. I shared this recently with my son, my second born son, who's very creative. He's got that artistic gift. And I was sharing with him just about this very thing about preparing to suffer because few people will receive the gift that you have to offer. And I said to him, but it will be worth it for those few who do. And his response to me was very uh, eye-opening for me. He said, even if a few do not receive my gift, I know I'm united with Jesus in offering it. And that that's the real consolation of the genuine artist, not whether or not his work is received, but precisely that he is allowing that divine beauty to flow through him, united with Jesus. Everything there is just 
profound and beautiful, and I think very true. We think of the artist as being united to the Father, I think, more than we do to Jesus as priest. But it's both and, right? And yes, I think both and. It, we can't just call out the creativity of the artist, that your role is not to just bring forth some new creation and put something into being. It is also to offer yourself as a sacrifice, your heart as a sacrifice, your labor as a sacrifice, and to recognize that in the end, that which you create might not be accepted. Yes. I mean, wow. There's a real sanctity in and holiness in that. There's a real holiness in that process and a Trinitarian, you know, a union into the Trinity that I think is quite wonderful. Yeah, it's almost like whether or not other people accept my art and I become, you know, well-known or famous or whatever, that is a image of what the Jews expected of the Messiah. Like, and that's in a way what we expect of our own vocations. But what is actually being worked out is a redemption that is a redemption of me and overcoming of death and sin through my own acceptance of suffering and my own like kind of committed union to God and my fidelity to God itself breaks open another stream that's deeper and that goes beyond I guess the more <laughs> I don't know brute expectations that we have of how people are going to respond or should respond to our art or our missions. So I think that's a really beautiful insight. It's so important, keenly important, that the artist understand who his or her real audience is. And the real audience is the Trinity and the communion of saints. Mm -hmm. Wow. And that means a genuine work of art is always worth creating, whether it's going to be received in this world or not, because mm. it's received in the communion of saints and it will live on eternally. Because all genuine art is a kind of representation of the incarnation. It's a putting color to or sound to or form or shape to or words to the word, right? It's bringing flesh to the word again. It's another kind of incarnation of the word. And that lives on forever. And that's what Voiti was saying when, when he says a story stream of beauty is flowing through me, but I'm not the beauty itself. I'm a vessel. I'm a channel of something that doesn't originate in me. And so we use the word creative inspiration, right? Well, inspire, it means the spirit is in me. The Holy Spirit is in me. That genuine creativity comes from the Trinity and it goes back to the Trinity. And the, the communion of saints are those who who see the beauty <laughs> that comes from the Trinity and that the creature returns to the Trinity. And there's another name for that which comes from the Trinity that the creature receives and returns to the Trinity. It's called liturgy. <laughs> <laughs> the true artist is living a liturgical life, which is to say the true artist is living a Eucharistic life, which is to say the true artist is living a life of thanksgiving right, is receiving a gift and returning the gift that has been received. That's liturgy. That's worship. That's amazing. I've once had this image of heaven where it was like a mass, but it was a mass where like every person, because it's eternal, so like it doesn't take long and yet it takes forever. But it's uh, every person is on the altar and you see their story from God's perspective, but they're telling it. And like the, the communion of saints is like clapping and cheering and they love it. Like, I mean, everybody's just like cheering the family on as like our stories because they become Christ. They play through Christ back to us. And in that Beautiful. sense, like you calling it a liturgy, it's 100%. It's awesome. I mean, it, that's, yeah, I love it. I love it. I went to a, a church called The Upper Room, which is a, a charismatic church that um, is pretty famous for, for music now. It's kind of like a another Bethel very like, yeah, very millennial and Gen Z kind of oriented and pretty wild and out there, you know, willing to break the mold and they get wacky. And sometimes they say things I'm like, ah, that's weird. But I do really love their willingness to embrace new ideas. And one of the things, so this was right after Christmas and what they did for, and apparently this is their tradition is they just have an open mic for everybody to line up. Anybody that wants to, they line up and they say, what has God done in their life to kind of free them? Uh, they get like, you know, maybe 30 seconds to a minute. 
to talk and everybody just celebrates and claps. And uh, I thought, okay, this is going to be a little cheesy, you know, whatever. But it was like one of the most cathartic, profound, like celebrations of God's like personal love for each person in that church. I mean, there's thousands of people there, right? So it's like, I can't believe that they're still doing this. You would think that that could be like something done in a small group, but no, it's like public, like live streamed, whatever anybody wants to say. And it was unreal how much I could see like God and heaven just all celebrating together. Like it was like taking the lid off of life in a way to see how God had been moving in all of these different people's lives. And yeah, I think that that was totally a foretaste of what heaven is going to be like. Yeah, why, why do we love these talent shows? America's got talent, mm. Britain's got talent, every country in the world's got talent. Why do we love these shows? I think it, it is a little taste of the communion of saints where each person will stand in front of everyone else and the unique beam of God's glory that that person is will be shining and everyone will see it and receive it and applaud it, right? When the artist knows that that is coming, when the artist knows that his true audience is the communion of saints, then he can endure the suffering of being an artist in this world where there are few saints who will recognize and receive the gift, right? I have a friend who's an, a musician and he tours a lot and and he's often in clubs where, you know, there's 50 people and 45 of them are drunk and the other five don't give a hoot about his music. And I said something to him some years ago that I think changed his whole approach to what he does. And I just said, sing to Mary, sing to Mary when you're at that pub. And, and the, the point of saying that was like, you have another audience. It's not just the people right in front of you. And Mary's going to receive your gift. She's going to receive your gift. She's at the foot of your cross. When you are up there on that stage and you're being crucified by the people in front of you, Mary's at the foot of your cross receiving the beauty of your gift. Everybody who's on a cross needs Mary, needs a Mary to receive the gift. Jesus himself needed Mary to receive his gift. We all need that. And when we realize the communion of saints is receiving our gift, we can give it. That's awesome. That's a great place yeah, to land, yeah. I'd say. I think, no, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Yeah, only because it's relevant to the conversation. And then we can wrap after this. A friend of mine is a priest who teaches and, and studies philosophy at a pontifical university in Rome. And we were having a conversation and he's really doing this deep exploration on the book of life as a play. Like it was, is the book of life like a play written by God? And I love the concept, but for me, I just, as he was telling me this, I said, it's an improv. I said, <laughs> it's, a, it's a, like in an improv, the stage has rules, like a framework, you know, like right. you shout out and the audience gives you some, some parameters to play within. But then in your creativity, you create the story with the players on the stage. And God just says, bravo, you know, I love that with, the communion of saints being the audience to a great improv and with this God throwing things out from the crowd. That's great. You know, it's amazing. Well, I, Christopher, it's been a joy and a blessing to be able to spend this time with you. I thank you for the unique insights that the Lord has put on your heart for the study that you've done and the prayer that you've done and the suffering that you've done to get to this place where you can share this wisdom with us and with the people who listen to us, with the whole Catholic creatives community, with the church. The book is God is Beauty, a Retreat on the Gospel of Art from Carol Voitia with uh, commentary from Christopher West. And we ask everybody to check it out where Christopher, um, we're going to be carrying it. I'll make sure we have it on catholic.store, but any other places where... Yeah, you can go it. to theologyofthebody.com. That's our main website and just click on our store and you'll find it right there. Awesome. I recommend everybody, if this conversation has touched you or that there's been things within this conversation that have awakened something in you, make sure you get that book. And Christopher, thank you. It's been, been a, a pleasure. You're welcome, Matt. Thank you, Anthony, as well. I really believe in what you guys are doing. Keep doing it. Yeah, thank you so much, Christopher. Have a good rest God of God bless you. Day.